1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA member FDIC.
1: Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about Henry Every and the Fancy meandering around the southeast coast of Africa. They sailed from the Cape of Good Hope to St. Augustine Bay, alias Libertalia, to the Comoros Islands, back to Libertalia, and then back to the Cape. It wasn't all aimless wandering, though. Captain Every was actively searching for ships that might join him and aid in his plans. Now, Henry Every didn't know that anybody was coming. He had sent that open letter out to English sea captains, a letter informing them of his intentions and promising not to attack them. But all he had was that letter and hope, hope that someone might show up. Because... Well, Henry Every had a very fine ship and a large crew and a lot of guns, but they still weren't enough for what he had planned. He needed allies, and if anyone out there had put the pieces together, had calculated what he did have planned, they would come. But Henry Every's best hope was the one pirate who had done this all before, Thomas II. Luckily for Every and the crew of the fancy... Thomas, too, and his friends were coming. This is episode 217, Bob's Key. After their very close call with the Mocha frigate off the coast of South Africa, the fancy ran, and she ran hard. That's a tricky bit of sailing, too. To to get away from a ship that's coming in from the east, the fancy would have had to sail west and then south. That's not difficult. That's the way the wind would have been pushing them anyway. But then, then you have to catch the currents that will turn you around. This type of current is called a retroflexion. It's caused by wind patterns and the shape of the sea floor. And the retroflexion southwest of South Africa, well, it's a ship killer. A lot of storms are born there, are a ton of hurricanes, and even just... Catching the waves could be deadly in the age of sail even today. But Fancy was up to the task, as were her sailors. Henry Every and his men made it out safely, and they caught the winds heading back west. They probably stopped once again at St. Augustine Bay, and when no news of any other ships were found, finally they sailed on to the Gate of Tears. A few episodes back, we discussed the Hajj, the yearly pilgrimage to Mecca that Muslims are expected to undertake once in their lifetimes. This event takes place in, and please excuse my Arabic here, but it takes place in the month of Dhu al-Hijjah, the month of the Hajj. And it's the month that marks the end of the Islamic year, but here's the catch. The Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar. That means that, when compared to a solar calendar, like we use in the West, their years are going to be shorter, by about 11 or 12 days. And it also means that their months don't line up with the seasons, like solar calendars do. Instead, their months kind of migrate through the seasons year to year. If Henry Every did indeed spend his early naval career under... Admiral John Narborough and John Binbo on the Barbary Coast, he may have been familiar with the Islamic calendar. I suspect that he was at least passingly familiar with the Hajj, because he was here, at the Gate of Tears, at this time of year, for a very specific reason. And his window of opportunity was limited. His aim was to capture a fleet of almost unbelievably richly-laden ships. They would be traveling from Mughal India into the Gulf of Aden and then pass through the strait known as the Gate of Tears. That's where Henry Avery intended to intercept them. Then, assuming that the pirates did not intercept them, they would move up the Red Sea to Jeddah, where they would land and make their way overland to Mecca. Now we're going to talk more about the ships who did make this voyage next time. For now, we should be aware that they were filled with mountains of coined silver and gold, filled with rubies and emeralds and silks and indigo and dyes and spices and anything that the pilgrims or those who were sailing along with the pilgrims might need to trade once they reached Arabia. They were the equivalent of the Spanish treasure fleets, Henry Every missed his first window of opportunity. He'd arrived in time to the region to catch the ships as they sailed toward Mecca, but he was alone when he arrived. He might have caught a lone straggler if she was a weak ship, but he wouldn't have been able to capture the kind of prize he wanted. So Henry Every took a calculated risk, Instead of continuing on, as we discussed last time, he spent those weeks sailing around looking for other pirates. But he failed to find any. And the window on his second opportunity was closing. Those ships, after their journey to Mecca, would be traveling back down the Red Sea. They would be filled with the proceeds of their trade, perhaps even more richly laden than they had been. And fancy could make it, to the Gulf of Aden, and the Strait at the Gate of Tears in time. But he would be alone, and he would have to moderate his piratical designs. But Henry Overy wasn't going to come all this way for nothing, so that's what he did. He sailed to the entrance to the Red Sea, and he waited. In the meantime, all of these other pirates that have been making their way toward Africa finally arrived on the scene. They were actually close to Henry Every when he arrived at Johanna in South Africa, but they'd taken a wide berth around the Dutch waters of South Africa. They were too far out to sea. Henry Every never heard even a whisper of their presence. But probably just a few days after Henry Every left Libertalia, Thomas II's Amity arrived alongside the Portsmouth Adventure under Captain Joseph Farrow and the Dolphin, under Captain Richard Wunt. This was probably sometime early to mid-May 1695. Now, when I picture Henry Every, I picture a a big guy. You know, not hugely tall necessarily, but broad. Broad shoulders and big arms and stout legs and a gruff, bearded, weather-beaten face, a stout man and I picture him in a blue navyman's coat. These were standard-issue coats from the inception of the Royal Navy, but only for commissioned officers. Still, Henry Avery did have one at one point. I don't know that he had one in 1695, but it's how I picture him. But you know the kind of coat I'm talking about. A blue, knee-length, double-breasted coat, so that it could be... Buttoned up to protect against inclement weather or opened up and tied back for hot tropical seas. And it's got those really big cuffs at the end that could be rolled up and tied down at the shoulder for hot weather or for dirty work. It's the uniform of a Royal Navy officer for the 17th and 18th centuries. And it will be the uniform for more than a few pirates. Henry Every may even have had a tricorn hat. Now, don't picture a leather hat. Jack Sparrow's pretty cool hat aside, the Royal Navy issued broad-brimmed wool hats to their sailors. The style in the English Armed Forces up until about this period was to pin up this hat on one side, usually the right side, where you would carry your musket while you were marching. But in the Nine Years' War, the English picked up the Spanish style of the tricorn. And Henry Avery may even have owned a pair of tall, leather boots, turned down at the knee. Traditionally, these were cavalrymen's attire. But once the cavalry began to diminish in worth, they became fashionable for naval officers. But even if he did own a pair of boots like that, he wouldn't have worn them aboard. No one wore those boots on board unless he was a, an especially vain captain of a capital ship. James Stewart, for example, did occasionally wear those high boots while aboard, but never when they were in battle or in rough weather. They're poor footwear for real work on a ship. On the other hand, I picture Thomas, too, as less broad, you know, kind of slender, maybe taller, than Henry Avery, and certainly not dressed in Royal Navy attire. While Henry Every certainly had a rough face, probably scarred from battle, Thomas Too was, well, I picture him as handsome. You know, my image of Thomas Too is certainly informed by Howard Pyle's drawing of the pirate enjoying a pipe with Benjamin Fletcher in his mansion. And that. Well, that image is a bit uh, mischievous. Not exactly Han Solo levels of dashing, but still a good-looking rogue. I picture him with long hair pulled back and maybe even an earring. So here we have this tall, slim, dashing rogue in his late 30s or early 40s. And I'd like you to remember here that Thomas, too, was married. He had a wife and a couple of kids back in New York in his estate there. Now, there isn't a whole lot of information about his wife, but she was a society hostess in New York. She rubbed elbows with the families of men like Captain Kidd and even Governor Fletcher. And I bring her and his family up because Thomas, too, is about to be unfaithful. But he's going to do so with no less a personage than a queen. When the Amity arrived at Libertalia, Thomas II caught the eye of none other than Queen Antavaratra Rahina, the queen of the Betsimi Soraka Confederation. And I should say, allegedly, here, we don't have Thomas II's account of his time at Libertalia. We don't even have the queen's. It might all be myth or, later, propaganda. But it's certainly possible that this handsome, dashing pirate captain with a fleet of ships and a couple hundred well-armed men, well, he might just catch the interest of the queen. See, Queen Regina was young and as yet unmarried and uncertain in her power. And a man like Thomas, too, might make a powerful ally for her reign. And who knows, maybe Thomas, too, was considering her offer. You know, New York was cold and stuffy. Out here at Madagascar was warm. They had fresh air and fresh fruit and a beautiful young queen who wanted to make him her lover and concubine. You know, Thomas, too, could have made himself a true pirate king of a real pirate kingdom. Maybe here he even decided to call it... Libertalian. Regardless, Queen Rahina, according to the story, did take Thomas II to bed, probably for his whole stay at St. Augustine Bay. And you know, I picture the Queen traveling through town and down to the pirate camp on the shore, likely being carried on a palanquin, with her lover Thomas II at her side. And Thomas II did stay and enjoy her charms for some time, but... He did have places to be. His men were growing restless while their captain spent his days entertaining the queen. Amity was already ready to sail. The other two ships in his fleet, Portsmouth Adventure and Dolphin, well, they left Thomas II there. They sailed north without him. So Thomas II did eventually untangle himself from the queen's embrace and prepared to depart. When his men were just about to get the Amity underway, two ships approached from the southwest. And it's moments like this that I really would kill to have a really good source for. We can only speculate on what went through their heads here. Thomas, too, may have seen those ships before, but probably they were strangers to him. Clearly, not East India Company vessels, nor Royal Navy vessels, and not Dutch. But they were well armed, and England was at war. If they were French ships, they were in for a fight here at St. Augustine Bay. And the French did have a presence in the region. Reunion Island, over to the east, was actually Réunion, So I imagine that Amity prepared herself. You know, they could run. Maybe they could outpace the newcomers. But then that would let the ship get away. And here, at anchor in St. Augustine Bay, they had men and guns and somewhere to run if they should be sunk. But they were in luck. As you may already have surmised, those two ships turned out to be Thomas Wake in the Susanna and William Mason in the Pearl. They had naturally heard about Too's plans to sail for the Red Sea, to capture rich Morris shipping. In fact, it was probably one of Two's own men that had informed them. Thomas Wake and William Mason agreed to sail with him under Thomas Too. This meant that Thomas Too had two new ships following him and... There were two already on their way to the Red Sea, waiting for him. Thomas, II was leading quite the pirate armada, and may have assumed himself in a position to be elected admiral once they reached the Gate of Tears. And now, a quick sidebar. When Thomas, II left, Queen Rahina was pregnant. At least, according to the story. This story about Queen Rahina and Thomas II, comes down to us from the queen's son, Ratsimihalo, allegedly fathered by Thomas II. Ratsimihalo would be king one day. In about 20 years, he would be king, which will correspond quite nicely with the dissolution of the Pirate Republic at Nassau, a time when, much like the late 1680s and early 1690s, Pirates were fleeing from the West Indies to Madagascar. And an addendum to that sidebar, an addendum which has no relevance to our story today, but is worth note. A young boy named John Binbo Jr. and another young man named Edward Seagar were both ten years old at this time. And then I'd like you to also remember Abraham Samuel, that Martinician slave-turned-pirate, He was on his way to Madagascar as well, aboard the John and Rebecca, one of those ships funded by Benjamin Fletcher to bring supplies to St. Mary's Island. Again, none of that is relevant today, but those pieces are all on the board, in motion, and are going to have a great impact on our story in the future. The Gate of Tears, the Bab al-Mandab Strait, separates the Indian Ocean and the Gulf of Aden from the Red Sea. It was known by the Pirates, according to E.T. Fox, as the Babs. The Strait is only about 20 miles wide. That's 32 kilometers for our friends everywhere else in the world, and to the Pirates about seven leagues. There's this peninsula, a tiny little peninsula that sticks out into the sea, and about two miles off the coast of that peninsula lies an island, called Parham Island today, but the Pirates called it Bob's Key, from the Bab-el-Mandab to the Babs to Bob's Key. Now, the water between Arabia and Bob's Key is deep enough that most ships chose to hug the coast of the Arabian Peninsula when traveling up the Red Sea. They would travel through that two-mile strait between the mainland and that island. On the other side of Bob's Key, you have about 16 miles between the island and mainland Africa, which at the time would have been the Kingdom of Ethiopia. But those 16 miles were not all available for large shipping. There's an archipelago of seven tiny islands called the Seven Brothers that create a... A number of shifting and sandy bottoms that make it a treacherous piece of sailing. Most bigger ships couldn't even make it through. Large shipping, such as that as would be on their way to Mecca, had about two miles on one side of Bob's Key and maybe seven or eight on the other side. You can see why the Gate of Tears is one of the oldest and most lucrative hunting grounds for pirates in the history of the world. Henry Every and the Fancy waited for a time at Bob's Key, but then moved over to the Seven Brothers. There were a number of coves there that offered good places to hide, and you could keep an eye on the sea, both the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Near the end of May, 1695, Henry Every had a man up in the crow's nest, and he was armed with one of those looking-glasses, still kind of a new-fangled invention, but the Charles II had been graced with several. That lookout spotted two ships approaching from the south. As they got closer, they spotted English colors, and every ordered the crew to set sail. The fancy moved out into open water, water through which any ship had to pass, and then she waited. The two ships on the approach tightened their ranks, and they made to sail on either side of the Fancy. She was an impressive frigate, but if they had to fight, that would be their best tactical position. As soon as they were within range, but not within shouting distance, those two ships pulled up and aimed their guns at Fancy. But they didn't fire. Every, knowingly putting himself at a disadvantage, opened up his own sails and moved toward them. This was Every staying true to his word. Even at a disadvantage, he probably would have won that fight in the fancy, but he didn't open fire. He said in that open letter to every English ship captain that he would not attack those flying English colors. Now, of course, he'd broken that word before, but here he didn't. One of the smaller craft hailed the frigate. They said, from whence are you come? Every replied, from the sea. And received the same answer back. Those two newcomers were, naturally, Richard Watts Dolphin and Joseph Farrow's Portsmouth Adventure. Now, Henry Every didn't know these men or their ships. He had no way to. Which is something kind of new to the world of the pirates. I mean, not entirely. Back in the West Indies, new pirate ships were arriving on the scene all the time, but... During the buccaneering era, there was a community there. If you knew people in Tortuga or Port Royal, you had some connections, and ships would often meet that didn't know each other at all, complete strangers, but they had friends in common. Henry Every and the Fancy were English, though. These two new ships were American, But it's not like Fancy was going to turn them away. I mean, he'd been waiting for this moment for weeks, hoping that any ships would show up to join him. Even if they were small, that... Really, that didn't matter much. They were nimble, they were quick, and they had guns on them. They wouldn't be able to capture any really big game on their own, but what they would do, and their purpose on the naval battlefield, was to keep the attention of the enemy crew divided. You know, if they came upon a prize, Henry Every and the Fancy would engage and stand toe-to-toe with her, ship-of-the-line style. But on the other side of the craft, the smaller vessels would be darting around, taking shots and occasionally hitting some, and they would be, more importantly, drawing fire. Gunmen aboard those ships would have to divert their attention away from the Fancy to at least try to prevent being hit. By one of those smaller craft. You know, they may have had fewer guns, but they were the same size. They could tear down a mast just as easily. While the bigger craft, the Fancy, would be able to focus all of her guns on the prize vessel and eventually get in close and board her. Now, we don't have any account of this meeting here at the Babs, but likely the officers from the Dolphin and the Portsmouth Adventure went aboard the Fancy and had a council talked about who they were, why they were there, and likely mentioned the fact that Thomas II was on his way. We do know, though, that these two ships agreed here to follow Henry Every. Since Thomas II was too busy with his queen to have joined them, they elected Henry Every as admiral. But, I mean, of course they did. Even if we were to take Henry Every himself out of the equation, whoever captained the fancy would be the obvious choice to be in charge. I mean, it was one of the finest ships that any men there had ever seen. It was probably a better ship than anyone on board the Dolphin or the Portsmouth Adventure had ever sailed on. Beyond that, just the logistics. It's the tallest ship in their fleet. It's going to hand out orders as the flagship. And just the size and power and speed of that vessel means that it will dictate strategy in any naval fight. But of course, Henry Avery himself regardless of the fancy, was still the obvious choice. Even if they all sailed on relatively equal ships, his experience in the Royal Navy in maybe as many as dozens of battles makes him the only real choice to serve as admiral. So the captains and the quartermasters all agreed and toasted their new venture. That night, the fleet there at the Gate of Tears was hit by a terrible storm a storm that scattered them all into the Gulf of Aden. All three ships lost sight of the others. And it was a a hard storm. The Portsmouth Adventure and the Dolphin rode out the storm well enough, but Fancy was damaged pretty badly. She lost her mainmast in the wind. Now they had the tools and the materials to repair her, but it would take time, time that they maybe did not have to lose so the crew set to repairing her as fast as they were able. Luckily, the following day, Captain Want found the fancy, and then a day later, the dolphin did as well. Captain Farrow, though, of the dolphin, had word of three ships that were approaching from the south. They were following him. He must have known, or at the very least, suspected who they were. Still, he ran back to the fancy just in case, The men of the fancy redoubled their repair efforts and got their mast up and running as soon as possible, just just in case. But beyond that, even if they weren't enemy combatants, if they were who these pirates thought they were, well, first impressions are important. You don't want a man like Thomas II to see you the very first time he meets you with your mast down around your ankles. And of course it was Thomas II. At the end of May, or perhaps in early June, 1695, Thomas II arrived at Bob's Key, alongside Captains Mason and Wake, to join in this pirate armada, and there was actually another pirate crew with them. There was a French brigantine full of French pirates that had been damaged in that same storm so badly that their ship was sinking. Captain Mason arrived on the scene and rescued them. His ship was a bit crowded, though, so once they joined up with the Fancy and the others, that entire crew climbed aboard the Fancy. Now that they were all assembled, and nobody had word of any new ships maybe arriving on the scene, all of the captains and their quartermasters and any of the, you know, influential officers, say the representatives of that French crew or that other French crew, All of those climbed aboard the Fancy to hold a pirate council. We do not, to my great sorrow, have a copy of the code to which they all agreed. We know that they had one, but only two pieces of information survive about that pirate code. First, all of those assembled officers voted in Henry Every as the admiral. This time, though, with the entire fleet assembled, there might have been a bit of drama surrounding Henry Avery and Thomas Too. At least, you know, I'm sure Too put his name into the hat. The vote was maybe even kind of close, but we don't know. We do know that Henry Avery, the obvious, really the only choice, was elected Admiral. The other snippet of information is this. In a later testimony, some of Every's crew testified that the representatives of all the crews agreed, whatever the circumstances surrounding the capture of a prize, that they would, quote, share and share alike. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Does it mean that every man in the fleet is going to get an equal share? Well, probably not. At least we know that Henry Every and the other captains got a larger share than the regular crewmen, which was traditional. It looks like what they were saying when they said, share and share alike, is that they were all of a piece. They were all one cohesive fleet. If one of the ships in the fleet was, say, damaged, or otherwise unable to participate in taking a ship, they would still get a share. I mean, naturally, cowardice would disqualify a ship. If they ran away, they get nothing. But if in good faith they tried and were unable to fight, they wouldn't be cut out of the winnings. With the pirate code adopted, Henry ever re-elected, and the fleet ready to capture the largest prize any of them had ever seen, the pirates set to having a party. And this was it. This was the most powerful pirate fleet that the world had seen in well over a decade since at least the Second Pacific Adventure back in October of 1684, maybe longer. There were six ships. The 90-ton, six-gun, 60-man brigantine Portsmouth Adventure under Joseph Farrow. The 100-ton, six-gun, 60-man brigantine Dolphin under Richard Wunt the seventy tonne, eight gun, sixty man sloop Amity, under Thomas two, Thomas Wake's Susanna, of one hundred tons, ten guns, and seventy men, William Mason in the two hundred ton, sixteen gun, one hundred man frigate, the Pearl, and then finally leading them was Henry Every. The Charles the Second had been a frigate, but, considering their renovations, The fancy, a forty-six gun 170-man vessel, would better be classified as a man-of-war. They were assembled. They were ready for a little bit of crime. Now all they had to do was build their web and wait. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, all of you who have left us ratings or reviews, and everyone who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.